How many of you are old enough to remember something called whiteout? Not a winter storm, but it was something you used. If you use something ancient called a typewriter and you made an error, you could take this magic liquid that was white, so they were very creative with the name, and brush it across the mistake, blow on it to let it dry because none of us were patient enough to let it dry on its own, and then once it was dry, you could type over it. So in other words, there was an error and you could white it out. Kind of like just as if it was never there. Except you could tell that something used to be there. You just couldn't see what the mistake was. Have any of you ever used a sticky note? Those of you that haven't raised your hands just aren't awake. Because there isn't anybody that hasn't used one of those or had one used for them, on them, or to them. Did you know that sticky notes were invented accidentally? They were trying to develop another product and that product didn't work and somebody went, I wonder if. And they created the sticky notes. Whiteout was created by a secretary who got tired of having to waste paper when they made mistakes and thought, surely there's something we could do. And she created her own thing of this and it started getting shared around the office. And she thought, maybe I could make money at this. Her company said, no, thank you. So she quit her job, patented it, and marketed it, and did okay for herself. There's an awful lot of things in life that in the beginning don't always look like what they end up looking like. Ever seen a baby? They don't look like that when they're older. Seriously, none of you look like you did as a baby. You're a lot bigger. Some of you have a lot more hair than you did, and some of us have a lot less hair than we did. Things change. Things change in churches. In our church... It was started more than once before it actually worked. There were a handful of times in the 30s and maybe even as early as the late 20s where they tried to get something established in Sterling and it, it went for a little while and then didn't quite make it and then they tried again and it went for a little while and then didn't quite make it. And then in about 1940, a, another group started again and it held on and then in... December of 1941, it was officially organized as a church and has been going strong ever since. Most of you are aware, but maybe not all of you, that in the corner of the building right over there is the original building. It's now surrounded. It's morphed into much more than what 
they had back then in the 40s when they built that. And it'll continue to change as we do some more changes in the next year or two in that area. Things change, but there is some things that never change. Or at least they better not. Our methods, our places, and even our people change. But our message is still the same. That's what we've been looking at. This is the third Sunday now on it's time to know your church. And the first week when we looked at this, I talked about the fact that we're disciples of Jesus, part of a larger body of believers worldwide as well as just in our denomination. We're also part of a district that's part of the worldwide thing, but we're a part of this local church, Sterling First Church of the Nazarene. And as you just sang, Jesus was a Nazarene. That's where the name of the denomination came from, in case you ever wondered. He was from Nazareth, and those from Nazareth were called Nazarenes. Not a bad name. Terrible to spell. Spellcheck hates the word Nazarene. Anybody you call on the phone and try to say where you're from, who's trying to spell it, never gets it right. But the point of it was that they said, we're trying to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene. So they said, we're just going to be the church of the Nazarene. That's where we come from. And we looked in that first week about some of what that means, and not just in our church, but to be a church body in general, that everything we do needs to be about where we are and extending beyond and literally to the world, just like Jesus told the disciples before he went back to heaven in Acts chapter 1. He said, you will be my witnesses, my followers, my ministers, Right here in Jerusalem, and then Judea, the surrounding area, and then to Samaria, the places that aren't like us at all, and then to the ends of the earth. And we're still working on that. And then last week, we looked at the fact that we have articles of faith that we follow. What, what we stand for, things that are stated, researched, adopted out of Scripture trying to explain our faith and we looked at the first six and in our denomination we have what's called 16 articles of faith and when this is done someone asked me this morning I said yeah I'll print all 16 make them available with with my simple summary of them if you would like you can get a hold of a manual for the church of the Nazarene you can go on the Nazarene website nazarene.org and uh, search around for a day or two and you'll find it um, but they're all listed there in detail um, but just trying to give you a taste and a flavor of what we say we believe. But you see, the church itself, not just this church, any church that claims to be following Christ, has to figure out who Jesus is. That's why we looked at this passage the last two weeks, and we'll look at it again this morning in the New Testament. That's the, the back half of the book. The book of Matthew, one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew chapter 16 
is where we're looking, beginning at verse 13. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You can look on any version that's a true version, translation, and follow along with me. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Who, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. He gave him a new name. You are Peter, and on this rock, on this statement of faith that Peter gave, he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. He wasn't ready for this to be revealed yet, and yet it still got out. You see, anything and everything that we do is based in that statement of Peter's. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. For you see, the church is founded on the confession of who Jesus is. We always have to start there and settle there. If we do our foundation on anything else, we're not really a church. We're just a society or organization or another club. So that's why we focus on this so much and put so much emphasis on Christ. And I would ask you the question, I did this the first week, who do you say that he is? Somebody says, why? I mean, why would you go? And if you say Jesus, they say, well, who is that? So let me ask you, who is he to you? Well, I gave you one thing you can say now. He's a Nazarene. But more than that, he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's a part of, as we looked at last week, the Trinity, the Triune, the Three, God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It has to start there. But not just who you say Jesus is. Let me ask a more difficult question. What does your lifestyle say Jesus is? Not just your words, but your actions. If somebody watched you for a week or a month, would they find evidence that you're following Jesus? As one person wrote a number of years ago, if you were accused of being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? One who follows Christ. That's what all this is based on. Nothing else is as important as that. Now, I want you to understand, though, that we are not just about understanding. We can't just be about having this intellect to understand and know these things. We have to be about living it out. And I'd like you to turn, if you have your Bibles or your Bible on your devices, keep going further right in the book to 2 Timothy. It miraculously is right after 1 Timothy. 
It's a part of five T's in a row. First and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy and Titus. Second Timothy chapter four. This gets used a lot of times in um, services that are recognizing ministers, <coughs> excuse me, or ordaining them. But it's not just for them. It is for everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because as we've looked at the last couple of weeks, all of us have a call on our life. So I want you to hear this as if this were written and spoken just for you. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. This is Paul writing to a young minister. And he said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom... Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. This is a charge that's been given to every one of us. Not just those of us who have the label pastor. But to every one of us, this is the charge that we've been given in the presence of God. So how does this work and where does it fit in the church? Now, I, lo I love when you take a look at this, and I am preaching on this at the very first church that I was the lead pastor. I had somebody who came up afterwards and said, Pastor, I think it's time for me to leave the church because there ain't no way I'm getting up there and preaching. And I said, okay, but it goes, well, you said that we're charged to preach the word. And I said, exactly. But the least effective preaching is what I'm doing. How's that for a way to recruit people to become pastors? The most effective preaching of the word is when you leave here at your job, in your home, at your school, when you go to the grocery store, when you're on the pickleball court, you don't know what that is, never mind. It is the everyday stuff. That's where the most effective and impactful preaching takes place. In fact, for me, if what I do during the week doesn't match what I say on Sundays, what I'm saying on Sundays is worthless. You're charged, preach the word as you walk, as you talk, where you go, wherever you go, whenever you go. Just this morning, I read an excerpt that someone had written of one of my grandfathers who was a farmer 
He also worked in a grain elevator. He did both of those things full-time until he was oh, about 75, and then he only did one full-time job after that. My grandpa was always old, as far as I was concerned. But I remember every time he would see me, especially teenage years and above, he would say, when are you going to cut your hair? Oh, I wish I got those questions now. And I had a question back to him. I said, when are you going to retire? My answer varied on the hair thing. But his answer never changed. Every single time. I said, Grandpa, when are you going to retire? He'd say, when I get old. Now, granted, I think the last time I asked him that, he was 88. I remember one time having a conversation with him and the family was sitting there and um, no air conditioning in the house and the doors and windows are open and you could see everybody passing by. <coughs> he had moved into town at that point. And uh, somebody walked by and Grandpa's just shaking his head. And I go, what? He goes, he goes man, he said, those, those kids these days, they're, they're messing up this town. I thought, oh, he's talking about me and other kids like me. And my dad goes, do you know who he's talking about? I go, no. He says, get up, go look out the window. And I went and looked up at the window, and this old guy was walking by. About my age. <laughs> now. And I turned to look at my dad, and my dad is trying to stifle the laugh. My grandpa's calling him a kid. Well, to my grandpa, he was. You see, when I read this excerpt this morning... It was someone who had known my grandfather, and he was talking to a cousin of mine. And what he said to my cousin, he said, are you a nailer? He goes, yeah. He said, I thought so. Who's your dad? And he names his dad and his grandpa and his great-grandpa, my grandfather. He goes, I thought so. He said, I want to tell you, your grandpa was a great man. And he said, and anybody who says differently, I will fight them. <laughs> I have no idea why that guy said that. In fact, my cousin said, the guy said it and said, I'm sure you're going to be great also and turned and left. He was working in a store. He said, I would love to have heard from that guy why he thought my great grandpa was a great man. He said, I, I know why I thought that. I know why I think that. I would love to have heard his story. But you see, what I do know is that his story was about how my grandpa lived Monday through Saturday. Not what he looked and did on Sunday. Oh, I know, every Sunday I knew where he would be and where he would be sitting. He had a spot in that little church. I don't think anybody ever sat in his spot. Now, not that he would have minded, that was just what they did, and... My grandpa judged the preachers who came to their little church by how loud their voice was. Because he had a little trouble hearing. My wife tells me it's hereditary. And um, my grandpa would talk about, yep, so-and-so, he was a great preacher. He goes, I could hear him. <laughs> you see, we have been given a charge to live the word. 
Well, it says preach, exactly. Because that's how you preach it. By how you live it. To live it out. You and I have been given the charge to preach, to be people of the word. It's why I encourage you all the time, get in the word. Know what it says. Read a little or a lot, but read it. Our words and our actions. That's why we teach our children in children's church and Bible school and wacky Wednesdays about the word. That's why Dalen's teaching the teens about the word. We need to be in the word to know the word so that we can live it, which means we're preaching it. It also says a really weird phrase in verse 5. It says, as for you, always be sober-minded. Sober, yeah. Sober-minded, it means clear of thought. Have clarity. The word sober is not thrown in there accidentally because... If you're under the influence of something, you're not thinking as clearly as you would without it. It says, be sober-minded, have clarity of thought. Live your life this way in all that you do. And then it says an even stranger phrase in verse 5. Always be sober-minded, endure suffering. That can't be right. That's a terrible phrase to put on a recruiting poster. Join us and endure suffering. Not too many people lining up for that. What he's speaking of is the fact that comfort does not equal obedience to Christ. Let me repeat that. Your comfort is not a picture of obedience. You might be comfortable for a while. But what we've been called to do is to live honest, sacrificial lives just like Jesus did. And if you looked at his life and what he endured for you and for me, it wasn't real comfortable. Endure suffering. In other words, be willing to do what is needed for Christ. One of the sacrifices of being a pastor is that we have often not lived near relatives, including our kids and grandkids. Oh, I would love to. We've had little stints where we had a couple of them near us. It was awesome. And I envy those of you who are in that position where your kids or grandkids are nearby. So j just as a word of warning, don't come whining around me that you haven't seen your grandkids for three days. When I sometimes have gone a year. Just pity party for me. Okay. But we've been called to endure suffering. Not seeking comfort, but seeking obedience. Not seeking just what I want, but what he wants. And that may be the hardest struggle of all. Because all of us are tuned into the station that says, what's in it for me? 
But as followers of Christ, as a church body, we have to change the channel to say whatever you want, Lord. Jesus gave us the example in the Garden of Gethsemane before Easter, before his crucifixion. He was praying and he cried out to God the Father and said, if there is another way, let's do it. But then he added what we need to learn. But not my will, but yours be done. Lord, what do you desire of me from me? What sacrifice do I need to make in this moment and with my life? That's the church. That's how the church becomes the church and lives it out. And then he says, and this gets really confusing. He says, do the work of an evangelist. An evangelist is one spreading the word. An evangelist is one calling people to repentance, to life in Christ, to, to repent of their sin and accept Christ's forgiveness and life in him for their salvation. And he says for all of us, work like an evangelist. What in the world does that mean? That means that each of us have a call to be seeking the lost, those who are without Christ, good people who are living good lives but have not yet accepted Jesus, people that are living messed up lives but have not accepted Jesus yet. All of them are lost, equally so. The word to be seeking, how can we pass the word? How can we show them Jesus? That's what the church is supposed to be. And you and I are the church. It's not the building. If it was, we'd still be in the corner over there. In that original building they did built, it wasn't very long before they had to knock some stuff out and add some more because it grew. They never built it to be a memorial. They built it to be a tool to reach people for Jesus. That's why things have changed around here. There used to be pews in here. Blonde wood. High backs. This close together. I was here for a couple of services. You didn't know that. None of those pews ever saved anybody. Neither have these chairs. Neither has these monitors or this sound system or the air conditioning. Although sometimes it has felt like it with the air. The work of evangelists, knowing what the word says and seeking to share it with others. And then it says, fulfill your ministry. I think there are two things about that. One we have a call on our life, all of us. It's, we're going to fulfill it in different ways. That's why there are people downstairs with the kids right now. That's why there are some people downstairs in the nursery. That's why there will be some people tonight in Hatton Center with the youth. That's why there are people up in the sound booth. Do you realize that on an average Sunday morning, there are more than 40 people volunteering to serve for everything to happen on a Sunday? Not counting those of us who are on staff. More than 40 every Sunday. That's fulfilling ministry. 
but not just there because sometimes it's at your kitchen table. Sometimes it's over the backyard fence. Sometimes it's at work. Sometimes it's even on the golf course or in the grocery aisle or over a cup of coffee. God's sweet juice, in my opinion. Hey, what else is magic like that? Add water and it becomes something magical. There's not too many things like that. Just speaking for myself, I, I thank God often that he created coffee beans. Some of you don't agree. It's okay. I'll pray for you. To fulfill our ministry, how are you fulfilling what God has called you to do? You see, we need to know what we believe so we can fulfill our ministry. We need to know who we are so that we know where we're going. We looked at some things last week, and I want to look at at least one that we have time for this morning in our Articles of Faith. Number seven is what's called prevenient grace. That's a big fancy word that means... We believe that God has enabled us to turn to him away from sin, but that he has not forced us to do so. But through his amazing grace, he draws us to him without forcing us to follow him. But he draws us personally, and we have to accept it personally. We don't believe that it's irresistible. We believe that it's possible to say no. You look at Jesus on the cross. He had two guys on each, he had a guy on each side. One of them accepted him. The other one cursed at him and rejected him. Both of them in the literal physical presence of Jesus Christ. Provenient grace. God loves you. He is passionately in love with you. He draws. He wants you to come to him. He wants us so much he has already gone to you. You just have to accept it. It's what's known as provenient grace. And it's amazing. That's why we sing songs that talk about God's grace and God's amazing grace. But when we come to him and accept that, we must repent. Repentance is powerful. We believe that each person must repent. They must turn away from their sin and trust Christ to accept him. Now, here's the interesting thing. Repentance is not sorrow. That's a part of it. Repentance is turning away. That's why the blind man said, I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was selfish, now I surrender. Whatever your story is, there takes this repentance to say, Lord, I don't want to just be forgiven of this. I want to turn away from it and go the other way. See, salvation is not just adding Jesus to everything else in your life. It's accepting Jesus and having him help you get rid of Anything that is not connected to him. Why does this stuff matter? It matters. Because a statement of belief or doctrine is of little value unless you 
believe it. And to believe it means you trust God enough to obey him completely. We're, we try to create a new theology that's called partial obedience. Now just think through that logically. If I partially obey, that means there's something I'm not obeying. Which means I'm not obeying. Well, yeah, but I am partially. You've obeyed this, but not what he's asked. That's the kid who's sent to the room to clean it up. They pick up one thing. They partially did what you said, but was that acceptable? I sure hope not. That's the teacher who gives an assignment and says, read the chapter, and the kid reads one page. I read in the chapter. Did they do the assignment? No. They did part of it. But see, when it comes to obedience and following Christ, we need to trust him completely. And the good news is he is worthy of our trust. He is trustworthy. The good news is Jesus the Nazarene is worth it. You can trust him with your life, with your dreams, your hopes, your fears, your hurts, your anger, and your joy. As a church, that's what we're calling people to. That's what we need to be about, not just when we get together here, but as we go from here. That's the church we need to be. That's the church I'm praying that I and we will be. Next week, part of what I'm going to share is some of the vision for what God is directing us toward as a local church body. But this morning, I simply challenge you to ask, who do you say Jesus is? And is your life evidence of what you claim to believe? Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace and joy. Thank you for your salvation and forgiveness. Thank you for your grace that draws us to you. Oh, Father, I pray that each one hearing my voice in here and online would accept you as their savior. But Lord, I pray also that as we go from here, wherever we go, however we go, whenever we go, that we would show and share you, our savior, to the world around us. Lord, thank you for the patience and endurance of these people. Thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray that your Holy Spirit has filled in where my words have failed. Now as we go from here, Lord, may we go under your blessing, in your will, following your call. In Jesus' name, amen.